episode 955, Surprised by Pope, part three. You know, there was a period of church history that had three popes. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I'm Ben DeVono. When they when they elected the third one, they could have called that surprised by Pope Part 3. I think, I believe during the history of Christianity we, we covered we when did. there were multiple popes, but I don't remember that. Sorry, we'll have to go back and listen to the episode. Yeah. Uh, ben, hi. Welcome back. It's been two Thank weeks you. since we were last together. We're, uh, we're here to, to pope it up again. You just said something out there I feel like it's worth saying here on there. You did something rare you use our facebook page to actually ask for listener feedback well, listener questions yeah and i no know questions we, we just did it yesterday so it's not like we gave them two weeks but you had one day and no one sent in anything i had some leftover questions um, i mean usually you don't you want to downplay the lack of listener engagement no, no, I, I know i know you're feeling that way but i i'm trying to get ahead of uh you know people might be like why why didn't you read my question well you didn't send in fast enough that's true Sorry, as we're recording, you just didn't get it to us. So sorry about that. Maybe ne- maybe for a surprise by Pope Part Four next uh, year. So there, there's all these Protestants too busy protesting to send in any worthwhile questions. Uh, we see how it is. All right, Ben, I've got for us tonight a few questions that I've saved for myself. Yep. Um, I also have these twelve misconceptions, and when we get to that, I have to give you a little disclaimer. So let's not start there. Let's start with my quick questions and listener feedback. We do have one that I saved from Cristiano. But first, I want to ask you, as I've been reading through the deuterocanonical books for the first time, and we're covering that over on the extra feed, uh, I did want to ask, I so I got the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Yeah. I didn't really know, when it comes to Catholicism, is there a preferred Bible translation? You probably know in Protestantism, there's so many, and different churches and denominations have their own preferred, so I wondered... What's that like on the Catholic side? Yeah, I mean, I think there there is, you know, obviously it's not going to be from the Vatican necessarily. It would be from likely the Bishop's Conference in each language. So uh, I imagine that there's some method that's gone through to, to give it the stamp of approval. You know, we don't have anything like the message running around. Yeah. Hey, I'm with you on the message. It's yeah. not my favorite translation. It's a, it's a mess. It's, I don't think you can even it's, call it a translation. No, it, it, it's fine if you read it as Eugene Peterson's thoughts on the Bible. Uh, like, that's fine, but it's, it's not the Bible. So, you, you know, you have something like that running around. Uh, we don't have anything like that. So I, I guess I don't know what the exact process is. But yeah, NRSV is, is tends to be the most common one. Okay, but that's not to say it's the only accepted one. Can you think no. of any other translations that are popular in Catholicism, or is it really NRSV all the way? Um, I I don't know any others off the top of okay. my head. All right, that does answer that question. I had mentioned his second question before we get to the misconceptions and the listener feedback. Uh, I had mentioned to a friend that I was pretty excited about what's happening with the podcast lately, and I've been really enjoying these episodes, asking you questions. This friend, Protestant, and when I brought up that we're going through Catholicism, uh, they jumped to, well, what about the indulgences? Oh. <laughs> so, the, so I, I, yeah. you and me are on the same page here, but just there's got to be somebody listening that maybe right, works right, the right. same way. <clears throat> so let's just talk about indulgences. What was it? How has the Catholic Church spoken to that issue since then? I mean, yeah. I, I think I know the answer, but go ahead. Yeah. So uh, indulgence. Like when people think of indulgences, they're usually thinking of, uh, you know, the 1500s, and you've got a corrupt church trying to sell people tickets out of purgatory, and you know, for for five hundred dollars, we'll give grandma uh, seven less years in purgatory and stuff like that. Okay, that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it didn't, and I'm certainly not saying it was okay when it did. And the church doesn't think. Oh, it's you're okay. saying indulgences don't exist today. That did happen, but well, it was no a- indulgences exist. The concept of indulgences oh, exist. Okay. They're not what what people think they are. Can you say what they? Maybe you should say what they are, and then kind of. I mean, you've already said this. This church did a bad thing and sold right. people uh, like time out of purgatory, which you even mentioned in a previous episode of Surprised by Pope that who knows? Maybe purgatory isn't necessarily a place people right. are just waiting to get out of. So. Uh, in the sense that it might just be a transformation period rather than a long extended waiting period. But what are indulgences then if they're not this negative thing that people associate yeah, with? Yeah, so it, it's just a way of saying uh, that it's the church officially recognizing um, that through God's grace, you have 
been given a relief of punishment that would have otherwise come to you. Primarily, it's thought of in terms of that purgation refinement process. So it's nothing you buy. It's it's no. as a gift of God. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a piece like of grace. There, you know, there will tend to be... Um, there's different ways you can earn indulgences, but it's not in terms of going to the Catholic catholicindulgences.com and loading up your shopping cart. It's things like prayer. It's things like um, participating in, in novenas and special things like that. I don't know what novenas are. It's, like a, it's a series of, I believe, 90 days of prayer. Um, so there's different things where the Pope or a bishop might in, announce that you do this and there's an indulgence, but it's, it's purely in terms of spiritual discipline. So, I mean, if I was to sell you on this as a Protestant, I would, I would say, okay, Catholics look at it this way, that doing these things earns us a remittance of punishment or refinement or the, the pain of, of purgation and in, in purgatory. Okay. So you as a Protestant don't agree with that. Couldn't you as a Protestant, <clears throat> maybe by getting to kind of a middle ground say, well, if the earning of indulgences is engaging in spiritual disciplines, and Protestants, of course, believe that there are benefits from engaging in spiritual disciplines that brings you close to God. Isn't that just describing the same thing, more or less? And I'm not saying there's no room for debate or disagreement, because there's still a gap, right? There's still a gap there. But it's not like this horrifying, oh, no, you know, you have to pay $1,000 to get a day out of purgatory and, and this corrupt church. Like, People need to realize, and, and and this is just a general statement for Protestants, Protestants act, uh, and I'm not talking about you, of course, but uh, Protestants tend to act like we're still living in the 1500s. We're not. Like, of course, bad things happened. You know, is, is, is your history spotless of your church lineage? Of course not. Of course not. There's a difference between an abuse and what the church actually teaches. Yeah, that stuff was abusive. It was abusive of doctrine. It was abusive of the people who were uh, taken advantage of. Of course it was. That doesn't mean that the concept of indulgences is wrong. I mean, you can believe it is theologically, but um, it's not that far away from what Protestants would say, you know, is the benefit of spiritual disciplines. All right, I got Cristiano here. Uh, he talks about... So have you read this email from him already? I, I did. So I'll ask you, do you want me to cut to the chase and get to his question, or do you want me to read his story about growing up in Brazil and kind of the, the fights well, between... Let's just go to the question for Okay, now. sounds good. So, Cristiano, thanks for writing in. Here is the question. In Surviving... Ev this is a book. In the book Surviving Evangelical Burnout, Howard Charest writes about how the evangelicals' emphasis on activity especially evangelism, was one of the reasons for his spiritual burnout. He writes about this constant, and now in quotes, need to find opportunities to share our faith and win disciples would lead us to develop friendships with people for an ulterior motive. And uh, the author also wrote about how people tended to become means for us to achieve our ministry objectives, and this because our lives were dominated and motivated by an activist cause. And finally, and also how all of those activisms turned into a manipulation of people. It took Catholicism's teaching on humility and quiet deeds to change that for the author. So Cristiano is asking you, Ben, and it sounds like I read this email. What are your thoughts on those quotes? And do you agree with, um, do you agree? And did you experience that as well? Yeah, and I went and found the article he was referencing, Burnout on Evangelicalism. or, or yeah, Surviving Evangelical Burnout. Yeah, so I, I thought it was really good. I wasn't familiar with the author, but I, I enjoyed the article. It's worth a read. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is not dissimilar to some of the other things we've talked about, that there are things that are points of emphasis in the evangelical world that are really good and really important, but they're given a place of primacy where that they're one thing among many, you know, and I forget what we were talking about with that exactly in terms of um, Catholicism. I know we touched on a similar point with that, but like the evangelical emphasis on, you know, 
winning souls to Christ. That's probably a little outdated from how it's typically talked about today. Um, but it wasn't, you know, that long ago before you'd hear that. And, and, uh, especially this personal conversion and proselytizing and all of that. And I'm not anti proselytizing. You know, I think there's a, a good argument to be made there. Like if, if you truly believe that without Jesus, somebody goes to hell, like that's a big deal. And, and you should take that seriously. So I'm not one to condemn evangelicals for proselytizing. I'd say there's a much bigger emphasis on it than there is in Catholicism. Uh, yeah. I do want to ask about that. Uh, I don't want to interrupt your stream of thought, but uh, yeah, where, where do, I don't know how to put this question. We over, we've established that there is a strong emphasis on even uh, evangelizing in pro, uh, various Protestant denominations. Is there that same emphasis amongst Catholic churches? Well, I mean, it's there. Like, it's there. Of course, there's Catholic missionaries, and there's an emphasis on on um, spreading the gospel. And, of course, that's the history of the Catholic Church. I'd say that there's two big differences, though. The first one is, again, going back to that individual relationship versus God's covenant people or the church. Like, that's a different way of thinking, and that changes the way that you think about those types of things. In other words, my goal isn't to go and get you to make a personal commitment to Christ. It's to get you into the church. You know, Catholics will use the imagery of the ark. The church is like the ark, okay? And okay. It, yeah, and so the, the goal is to get you into the ark, not to necessarily have you say a sinner's prayer or something like that. So it, it, it can feel like six of one, half dozen of the other, but there's a subtle and significant difference there in terms of how you're thinking. The other thing is that Catholicism doesn't have that as the primary point of emphasis. And I think this gets to a lot of what uh, uh, that article is talking about in that quote is that, and I, I, I think there's a lot of evangelicals who really need to hear this. Uh, even if you disagree with everything else I'm saying about Catholicism, so this isn't a pitch for Catholicism. This is a pitch for evangelicals, and again, I'm using that term in a very broad sense. Evangelicalism, in its modern form, is so incredibly biased towards extroverts, it's insane. It's incredibly insane. And I can give a lot of examples of this. First of all, it's the everything that is being described in that question. Go out and begin a conversation, or, you know, maybe this isn't done so much anymore, but kind of the street corner evangelizing, walking up to somebody, beginning a conversation with them, forming a relationship with them. You know, it's like even in churches that I grew up in and everything, and as recently as, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you'd hear, oh, we want everybody to go and make friends with their neighbors and invite them to church. And it's like, none of those are bad things. They may or may not be effective, you know, we could debate the efficacy of tracks and everything, but I'm just going to go say from a taking a, I don't even want to get into that level of detail from the, the purpose, the intent there to bring somebody to Christ, to rec rescue them from hell is a very good thing. So I want to affirm that nothing wrong with making friends with your neighbors. It's a good thing. But every one of those types of activities is something that is weighted towards extroverts and is against introverts. And it's like there's more than one type of person. Same thing in terms of the worship experience. And I want to talk about that more in a separate point in a minute. Um, but like the whole idea that you're going to go in and, and evangelical worship is very emotive and it's very expressive. Like you have to know if you're an evangelical, especially somebody who's a pastor and some position of authority, you are making a significant portion of your congregation miserable on a weekly basis and it's not okay like it's not just a matter of preference it's like god created people differently and so catholicism in my opinion has a better balance of this like there's contemplation there's there's action you know catholicism has room for both and i think the mistake of evangelicalism is biasing so much towards action and so much towards the experiential that the contemplative is lost in there you can disagree with all the theology that's behind catholic contemplation and all of that um 
But it's like, is there a place for proselytizing? Yes. Is there a place for action? Yes. But that can't be the only part of the spiritual life of the church. And I think that what that article is trying to describe is a situation that feels very familiar to a lot of people. And a lot of people who are in evangelical churches today, uh, I guarantee you they might disagree with every last part of what I'm talking about theologically. There are people in your congregations, though, who would never become Catholic in a million years who would resonate with what I'm saying because this is like the great untalked about problem. You're saying introverted people, it's torture. You, have to, you have to recognize that. It's torture. Yeah. yeah, it's like to go and ask, tell an introverted person they need to go make friends with all their neighbors and invite them to church. You're not doing that person any any service. And yes, there's a place to push people out of their comfort zone, but you're not. Like you're 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 taking somebody as God made them and you're, you're slapping them in the face and trying to make them conform to something that they're not. It, it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, as you're telling that story and something you said sparked a memory, I hadn't thought about it in years, <clears throat> but uh, if listener, I don't know if we've really told our full stories of how we became Christians, but I first started hearing about the gospel from a friend when I was in third grade, my friend Ryan, who's been on the show. Uh, so I, I'm having a memory from around sixth grade. There was a kid in my class his name is Jamie. I don't think he's listening. Hey, Jamie. Okay. Uh, but uh, I remember he said, I, I was, you know, at a young age, I felt more comfortable just kind of checking in to see where, where you're at with your faith. So I remember asking this kid, Jamie, are you a Christian? And he responded back, I'm a Catholic. Oh, and oh I was, and no, young sixth grade Matt was confused by this response because to me, he's just named me a denomination. And so I kind of asked him, but are you a Christian? And he said, I'm a Catholic. So now, Ben, I'm asking you does does that que- does that answer make sense? Yeah, yeah, it totally does. I mean, I I have no problem saying I'm a Christian. And, yeah. Um, but yeah. So would you ever answer somebody if somebody said, "Are you a Christian?" Would you ever say back? Would you just say simply yes, or would you say I'm a Catholic? I might say yes, I'm a Catholic. Okay. But no, I mean because I, if you're a true Catholic, yeah. it's synonymous. Is exactly. that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. okay well, that's fun. I just had a little flashback. I think when people tend to ask that question that the reason it gets answered that way is that it is at least culturally tends to be coming from more of an evangelical proselytizing mm-hmm. perspective yeah definitely i was tr- i was you had jamie in your sight i was trying to see if i should invite him to church right I? right <laughs> all right let's go to these misconceptions ben now flashback to right after you became a catholic our friend rickley james had you on his show we ended up putting that episode into our feed two years later in episode 314 called Catholic Misconceptions. But I, I'm pretty sure you recorded the episode in either late 2012 or early 2013. So I thought it's been years, right? eight years. Let's let's get long time. Let's get your updated answers to these questions. Now, when Rick, I, I haven't asked him about this, but I've read through these questions. They're a little bit like almost seem like they're on the offensive against Catholics. So I believe Rick put these together kind of either he found them somewhere or he put them together thinking like here's maybe how some people may present yeah, the questions because yeah, we know I'm sure that's yeah we know we know where Rick's coming from I, and of course as I'm reading the questions then you'll know where I'm coming from I'm just the messenger reading these I questions but uh, the, some of these are I worded I don't make that distinction I feel like some of these are worded a little harshly so and uh, if you feel like we've covered them already, and I'll know also, we could just skip past them. So, are you ready? Yeah, sometime in here, I do have another point I want to touch on. So, let's do some of these, and then we can hit that, okay. and we can do the, the rest. All right, number 12. And again, we may have talked about these in either uh, Surprise by Pope Part 1 or 2, but let's just, I'll read them as is, and we'll decide at that point. Misconception number 12. Catholics can sin all they want, and then just confess it away. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a silly one in that... Uh, that's true technically i guess you can sin and god will forgive you uh how is first of all we take the issue of of confession put that aside Uh, couldn't you say the same thing about a protestant or an evangelical a protestant can sin all they want and then just pray for god to forgive them Mm -hmm. well i mean paul addresses that right it's like it's you're just saying the same thing so it's not even getting to the root of the disagreement it's 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 identifying a problem that to the extent that it exists and i suppose it does exist to some degree in in people on all sides it's a bad theology and b just doesn't exist uh widely in catholicism that's not what catholicism teaches that's not what evangelicals or protestants believe about repentance like nobody believes that to the extent that people act that way well, everyone would agree, and probably even the people acting that way, that that's 
wrong. Like, that's not what Christianity teaches. So this is one of those cases where nobody believes this. Okay. And I, it, this question actually got me thinking about a different thing. I don't believe we've ever talked about. Uh, you've mentioned that you've gone to confession. Yeah. But I don't know exactly what the process is for you personally. So do you want to talk about that? Like, yeah. how often do you go? What happens when you're there? I don't know anything. Well, I, I, I don't go as often as I, I should. I'd like to, to get there once a month. It's hard with, you know, small kids, and that's mm -hmm. an excuse. We try and go, you know, every two, three months or something like that. Uh, but the process that you're supposed to do when you, you go to confession is you're supposed to begin with an examination of con conscience, and there is a lot of different methods for that. You can Google Catholic examination of conscience. It's not as though there's one prescribed method, but you can find different things that will, you know, some of a lot of them walk you through the Ten Commandments and ask different questions around, you know, things in there. Um, so you're supposed to do an examination of conscience and go in and confess to your to your priest. So when you actually show up for confession. Now, a lot of parishes these days do face-to-face -face confession as though that's somehow uh, a better. I think it's horrifying. I don't want to do face-to-face -face yeah, confession. Yeah, because in the movies, yeah. you go into a box, and there's yeah. like kind of somebody in the shadows. Right, who right, is right. Your, so in the movies, though, this is a priest that probably knows this guy that they're talking to, right? Maybe. I mean, a... I, like, I go to a fairly big parish mm -hmm. right now. So so your priest doesn't necessarily know you by name? Exactly. Okay. And, and so uh, at our parish, there is, you know, confession is anonymous. It's a you. It's not quite the way it looks in the movies, but same type of concept. You go and you nail down, and it's very stereotypical to what you've seen in the movies. You know, you make the sign of the cross and uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been blah 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 since my last confession. So you have to keep track of when the last time you came on. Yeah, I mean, roughly. can you can you get like do you estimate or do you have to say exactly? Oh, well, it's it's not like you know your confession's invalid if you say three months and it was four. Mm -hmm. It's you know, it, it's. Yeah, it's it's just the formula of it, right? And so then you you know, the priest before you say that actually the priest as you come in will will bless you and and it begins the, the rite. And then, you know, you confess your sins. Uh the priest usually will uh give some response to you. So there might be some discussion, some counseling. It's not so, you know, the point of confession isn't counseling, but there will be some pastoral guidance in there. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And then the priest will give you a, uh, uh act of penance to do. Typically it's prayers or it might be an activity or something. What, like what kind of activity? Oh, it might be, you know, like if you confessed, um, oh, I'm, uh, I blew up at my wife this week. It might be your penance could be something like doing something loving towards your wife or something okay. like that. So do you have to be, I know I'm asking so many questions. You mentioned that specific sin. Do you have to try to name as many sins as you can remember? So it's, yeah, you, you like you say, to, it's been three months since my last confession. Right. Here are the things I remember. You, you need to name any mortal sins that you committed uh, and, and any, you know, it's healthy to name as much as you can. Okay. You know, but for sure anything that would have been considered a mortal sin or could be, uh, needs to be named. And then the priest will, um, you, you make an act of contrition and then the priest absolves you of your sin. What is your act of contrition? The act of contrition is a prayer. Okay. Uh, it's, um, you know, Jesus, I'm sorry for, having offended thee and choosing to do wrong and or choosing to do wrong and failing to do good. It's, it's, so there's I don't a have specific memories, prayer. But yes, it's, it's, a, specific it's not prayer. like one you're just making up on the no, fly. No, no, no. We, we don't, we don't make up prayers <laughs> on the fly. <laughs> uh, then the, the priest absolves you. In, in my parish, the acts of penance are, are almost always prayers. So then you go out like the, the confessionals are right there in the sanctuary. So you go and kneel down and, uh, do your act of, of penance and you're done. Okay. Feels great. And you'd said you go every two to three months. You'd like to go more often. Is there, obviously it's not a requirement, but is there a number they like to encourage you to come back? Well, I mean, there's a often? requirement at least once a year. Okay. Uh, you need to go to confession and anytime if you commit a mortal sin, you need to go to confession before you take the Eucharist. Oh, that's good. Oh, um, I'm, I'm assuming the answer is nothing, but let's just say, like in Catholicism or in Catholic doctrine, if you haven't, let's say you haven't been to confession, there's not there's not like a belief that if you die, then those sins aren't forgiven, is there? Or do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, there is. So like, yes. So let me ask you a question then. Yeah. Let, like, so you just recently went, I think you said. Right. Now you're not going to go for a month or so. If you die in the next month with sin, do you go... 
Yeah, so you do go to hell or so, heaven. Well, let's let's. This is the distinction between mortal and venial sin. Okay, right. So venial sin. Uh, well, mortal sin would be sin that separates you from God, sin that takes you out of state of grace. Uh, venial sin would be stuff that's sinful, but but not necessarily rising to that level. You know, you you got a little, you lost your temper a little bit with somebody, versus you lost your temper and then beat the person or something like you know something like that. So let's say that you commit a mortal sin and you die. Yes, Catholic doctrine would say that. If you die with unconfessed mortal sin, uh, you would go to hell. At least, you know, obviously God can do whatever God wants to do, mm-hmm. but in terms of the normal means of grace, yes. Now, let's say that you you uh, commit a mortal sin, you realize you need to confess, you're driving to church, you get hit by a truck, you die. Is that like, too bad, so sad? No, because Catholic doctrine would teach us that you had— you know, you had the intent. You were you were acting to go and confess as quickly as possible. Okay. So it's not as it's not magic. It's obviously God knows your heart. Mm-hmm. But to die in an unrepented state of mortal sin with no intention of confessing and no other mitigating factors, it's like you know, yes, I committed a mortal sin, and then ten seconds later, I got kidnapped by the boogeyman and was held prisoner for ten years. Oh, I can't go to confession. It's like obviously. Obviously, you know, it's it's not magic. It's mm-hmm. not uh, a recipe. It's God knows your heart. God's provided the ordinary means of salvation for us, one of which is grace through the sacrament of confession. So, yes, fringe cases, edge cases, all of that common sense would apply, as you would expect it to apply in Catholic doctrine and Catholic teaching. But if you... You know, say you beat somebody to a bloody pulp and, and you're clearly in a state of mortal sin and you have, you're completely unrepentant of it and you die. Well, could God still save you? Of course. God can do whatever God wants to do. Is your soul in danger of hell? I'd say absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. So it wouldn't be a, so, cause I would think this is the outsider looking in. If purgatory is a place, which we, we established, we don't necessarily know if it is a, a actual place. Yeah. You would think, uh, like, I'm committed to, to Catholicism. I did sin, so maybe go to purgatory instead of hell. Yeah, pur- purgatory is for cleansing your venial sins. Okay. Purgatory, nobody in purgatory, and I'm going to speak of it as though it's a place. So yeah. caveats there, but it's just easier to have the conversation. Yeah. Nobody in purgatory is in danger of hell. Everyone in purgatory is saved. Yeah. They just have, and that's why in Dante, one of the things that's significant is St. Peter's Gate is at the entrance to purgatory. Okay. Why? Because purgatory isn't heaven. It's not mm-hmm. paradise, but you you are saved. You died in a state of grace, but yet you're still imperfect. Okay. That's what venial sin is. And you're saying, because I believe Protestants think once you get to hell, that's it. Yeah. Like there's, I think there's that, that parable with the other Lazarus and the rich man, and there's a chasm between the two. So I think Protestants would say, yes, God could do everything. But if somebody's in hell, that's where they stay. But um, you're, yeah, I mean, that's what Catholics believe, too. But I would say, like, I'm never, you know, here's the way I look at it. And and people bring up things not just like what we're talking about, but also people in other religions who never hear of, of God or anything like that. Christ, I should say. Likely they have some conception of God. You know, and say, well, oh, those people never heard of Christ. They never, you know, were reached by the church probably less of an issue today than it would have been a thousand years ago, but still, you know, there's still people like that. Or maybe maybe the better parallel for today is grew up in a culture that was openly hostile to the church. They never got a true view of Christianity. Well, what happens when that person dies? Uh, You know, let's say that somebody's raised in the Middle East. They're taught a very hostile version of Christianity. So they're aware it exists, but never were presented with the truth. And let's say that person genuinely within the confines of his faith lives a good life and and is repentant and uh, all of that within the confines of what he knows. That person dies. Does he go to heaven or hell? Well, here's what I would say to that. The ordinary means of salvation are what God has provided to his church. Those are what they are. And we don't get to sit there and say, well, you are good. And so you just get to make your own way to heaven. In other words, Catholicism in this way of thinking is not pluralistic. 
We're not saying it's just as good as if, if you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu. It's like, no, there are the ordinary means of salvation. That is the church and the sacraments. Okay, so if you want to go to heaven, you want to be sure of it, that's what God's provided for us. But then there's the extraordinary means of salvation, which is saying that God isn't bound by those. Like, we're bound by those. That's why it's such a problem when somebody goes out and makes some pluralistic statement of like, oh, it doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter what your faith is. As long as you try and be a good person, you know, everybody's going to be fine and go to heaven. It's like, no, you are bound by the ordinary means of salvation. God isn't. You know, and and I don't know if that way of thinking is exclusive to Catholicism, and it, it's definitely, I wouldn't say it's dogmatic in Catholicism either. It's, I'm sure plenty of Catholics would disagree, and I'm sure plenty of Protestants would agree. Yeah, I mean, love wins. <laughs> it's completely different. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing about love wins, to go back to the whole Rob Bell thing, is Rob Bell uh, accidentally discovered pur- purgatory along the way. Really? Like, he, he's, like he, this whole thing was, no, Rob Bell des- believes in hell. Well, if you actually read the book, he doesn't believe in hell, but he does believe in purgatory, which he calls hell. Hmm. Because right. he believes hell is not is a temporary yeah. place. So Rob Bell just invented Protestant purgatory is what happened. And did a, the guy's a nut. All right, let's go on to misconception number 11. Sorry, We're Rob working Bell our way fans. down. Not a fan, yeah. You don't like Rob Bell? No, I can't stand No, him. I mean, I, I was a fan, listened quite often to his uh, weekly sermons and liked his NUMA videos quite a bit. It did seem like he took a turn at some point. Like, I, I think he might have been on track or maybe he... I don't know. I, I don't I, think he, I don't, I'm, not, I, I don't I'm wanna, not saying he never had anything good to say. Like, it doesn't have to be all the one or the other. But Rob Bell was 100% in this... Uh, like his, the, his his writing, his way of argumentation was horrible. He was a feelings based well, pastor. I, I'll say, I'll admit, I really liked him. Uh, Daniel Butcher and I, I remember we went to go wa- uh, see him speak That's live. One of my favorite pictures. One of my favorite pictures I'm in was with Rob Bell, and he he's so cranky. Uh, I don't know why he was cranky that day. Love, love but, did not win when that picture was taken. But Daniel and I are in a picture with Rob Bell, and he looks about as angry as you can imagine. I don't think I did anything wrong, but uh, but I'll you admit, were I, touching him. I did have my arm on his shoulder. Maybe he didn't like that. I, he, I don't. But think I'll so. admit I did like his speaking, and then at some point I do think his theology took a turn that I couldn't follow. So there it is. Uh, all right, number eleven misconception is this. Catholics pray to saints. Now, before you answer, let me try to answer because we did cover this on part one. Right. I think you said that you wish that there wasn't that use of the phrase pray to saints because really what you're doing is you're asking the saints to pray on your behalf. Yeah, it's a a failing of the English language. All right. Uh, uh, Misconception number 10. The, The Catholic Church discourages Bible reading. Yeah, this is a this is a weird one. I I mean there I think there was a time when this was true. Uh it's not true today. So, but let's understand like why would the church have ever discouraged Bible reading? Um so, before I say make this argument, I'm very pro Bible reading. Okay? So I'm in favor of Bible reading. Let me ask you a question then. How often I'll, and you can ask the same question to me if you want. How often would you say you read your Bible every week? Uh every day. Okay. Yeah. There it is, listeners. See? All right. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. So I'm a pro Bible reading. Okay. What's the counter argument? How could you be a Christian and not be pro Bible reading? Uh, have you ever talked to somebody who's just out reading the Bible and heard the crazy crap that they've interpreted out of it? Yes. Constantly. Constantly. People are terrible at interpretation. Absolutely awful at it. Like, just go talk to somebody who reads their Bible on a regular basis with no context and no education. They're awful at it. Okay, that's exhibit A. Exhibit B is, let's take people, let's let's go good faith here. People who actually know something about the Bible, meaning that they didn't just, you know, they're actually aware that it's this ancient document. There's they They, they know what the word context means and have some semblance of the idea. And let's so so let's say you you line up a, a dozen devoted Bible readers and ask them you know what a a ask them ask them to explain what the Book of Romans means. Like you're going to get twelve different answers. I, I don't agree. I thought you were going to say Revelation, which well, would, or Revelation. I mean, that's a hundred yeah, different yeah, answers. Exactly. It's like they're going to be all over the place. So even people who are educated, who know how to read the Bible, and it is a skill. And, you know, it's it's like there's an actual skill there. They can't agree on what it actually says. So from that perspective, 
if you were to make an argument that says, and you also believe, so this would be the prerequisite to this argument, that God has given his church the gift of apostolic succession, and the Holy Spirit is guiding the church throughout history, it is not unreasonable to land on a position that says maybe the average person shouldn't just be unleashed with their Bible. Now, that's not what I believe. That's not what the church believes. But I'm, I am going to make the case that that's not an unreasonable position, especially historically. The other thing in terms of like how— all- It feels like you were accused of murder, <laughs> and you're saying, I didn't kill this person. Right. But- I can see why somebody (laughs) would kill them. Totally. No, that's 100% true. Like, this is a totally reasonable argument to make. I don't agree with it, but if somebody, somebody could make this argument and have it be pretty much airtight, that's all I'm saying. The other thing to consider is that Catholicism, unlike Protestantism, and this is why this is such a a sticking point historically, uh, Protestantism is 100% tied to literacy. 100% 100% tied to literacy. It's not an accident that the printing press and Protestantism arise out of the same historical period. It's You've said this before, but do you want to just quickly restate why that is? Let me say, let me try to say it. Is it because people started reading the Bible for themselves and yeah. started making their own interpretations of things? 100%. Yeah. You, you start to have widespread literacy and something like Protestantism becomes possible. So instead of hearing the priest tell you what the Bible right. means people are coming up with all their own ideas on what yeah. these different passages mean. Yeah, and again, I'm, I'm in favor of people reading their Bibles, so very pro-literacy. Uh, Catholicism, though, is constructed as an A-literacy faith. A-literacy in the same, I'm using that in the same you sense mean, of atypical. It doesn't, oh, I thought you were going to say it doesn't require someone to read. That's what, what I mean. mean. Okay. A-literacy. It is uh, compatible with the literal world. It was compatible with a pre-literal world, a pre-literacy mm-hmm. world. It will be compatible with a post-literacy world. Protestantism will not. Now, you've talked about this post-literacy world. I feel like this is an episode we should come back to. Because yeah. you have some interesting thoughts on where things are heading. Can you? Uh, yeah. Should I make totally. a note of that? Yeah. Well, let's just, let's say, flash forward 200 years in the future. Let's say nobody reads. Virtually nobody reads. Let's say literacy rates or ability of people who actually read is comparable to what it was prior to Gutenberg. So prior to the invention of the printing press. So nobody reads is an exaggeration, but there's a, a distinct class of people who read, but nobody else can read. How does Protestantism survive in that world? especially evangelicalism that's so centered on things like reading your Bible, it'd have to radically change from what it is now and not just evolve. Like it would have to radically transform. Protestantism can't survive in a post-literacy world in the way that it is now. All right. Do we answer that question? So the church doesn't dis- discourage yeah. Bible reading. Why do people think it does then? Was there some historically, historically it yeah, did? Historically. historically, it did discourage. Yes. Okay. Got it. So, I mean, have you ever met a Christian who you, you would like to discourage them from reading their Bible? Yes. Everybody has met that person. Where you're like, you know, I'm pro-Bible reading, but you should stop. Everybody's met that person. So all right, the, that's all I'm saying. Uh, this next one we did talk about a little bit regarding praying to the saints, but uh, I think it might be worth you restating whatever you think about this. Misconception number nine. Catholics worship Mary and are therefore committing adultery. Adultery, sorry. idolatry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we've been accused of a lot of yes. inappropriate things with Mary. That just, that just crossed the line. <laughs> idolatry. I know. I did read it wrong. <laughs> as soon as I said that, that, that just didn't right. feel right on right. my tongue. Nope, it's idolatry. Idolatry, yeah. So go ahead. So Catholics worship Mary and are therefore committing idolatry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this one's just silly. And it, it's a little bit of a, a similar problem with the praying to saints of the English language. It'd say Catholics venerate Mary. They don't worship Mary. They honor Mary. Um, now, it's true. Let's give the devil or the Protestant <laughs> wow. same difference. Uh, that was a joke. Yeah. His due. Um, do Catholics elevate Mary above every other saint? Yes. Do they elevate Mary to the level of the Godhead? No. Okay, but, so, but they do. I, I remember you taught me this in the past, not in any of our Pope episodes recently. But uh, 
she th- they believe she's been without sin her whole life. Yeah, that's a different conversation. Though. Okay, but yes, a- and uh, the immaculate conception okay. and that she was assumed to have a Assume, yeah, perpetual so, virginity. So, yeah. And so that yeah, so I, that's another. One. I never knew she was taken to heaven without dying. Yeah, I, I never heard that. Now, before. now the Protestant answer would be, oh, where where. Where's that in the Bible? Where's that in the Bible? Again, we go back to our authority conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's not so, but that only matters if the Bible is the sole source of truth. But since we don't agree on sola scriptura, that line of argument is pointless to yeah, engage in. Yeah, that that does make things tricky. You can't really have a debate with each other. I'm saying Protestants right. and Catholics can't have a real true debate because there's some foundations they don't agree on. Exactly. Exactly. If we both agree, the Bible and the Bible alone mm-hmm. is the source of truth. You show me your verse, I'll show you mine, and we'll duke it out. But we don't. We don't, because you believe the Bible alone, and I believe the Bible, plus church tradition, plus the magisterium is the authority God has given us. And by that source, that teaches me that Mary was assumed into heaven. Mm-hmm. So it's it's we're, it's apples and oranges. Anyway, going back to Mary for a second. So the order, the hierarchy here, the big divine hierarchy would be God, Mary, everyone else. Okay? God, Mary, everyone else. She's middle management. So why? Like, why? And and so first of all, uh, Catholics do hold Mary in a very high regard. We, we, we you know, take the doctrine of immaculate conception. I don't want to get too deep into it, and I'm sure people disagree. And people will pull out the, well, you know, you're saying Mary was sinless. Yes, but not in the way that Jesus was. Mary was cleansed of original sin at the moment of her uh, conception. Jesus not never her had. Yes, at the moment of her conception, oh. Mary was cleansed of original sin. I, okay, That's the I, I immaculate think I conception. I thought you meant that when God made her pregnant, that that kind of covered backwards and forwards. No, at the moment of Mary's conception, she was cleansed of original sin. Okay. Jesus never had original sin. So Mary as a kid just grew up yeah. totally sin-free. Sin sin-free. Okay. Now, again, you can disagree with that all you want. That, that's not the point. I know it is. I mean, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that, but I, I want to hear you out, so keep so going. She's the, so the, the idea here is uh, Mary was still saved by God. So Mary was not was still in need of a savior. Like this is one of the points that Protestants get wrong about what Catholics think all the time. We when we say Mary was sinless, we do not mean that she was not saved. She was. She was saved at the moment of her conception from original sin. She was not sinless in the way Christ was. Very important distinction. Okay, so why why? It's because Mary is the new ark of the covenant. You know, Mary is a pure vessel for God. Like, one of the names for Mary in both the East and the West is Theodicus. It's the mother of God. Like, that's, you think about that. Like, God prepares this covenant ark for himself to go into. Yeah, so I'm just thinking to myself, whether I, or I and Protestants agree with what you're, you're saying or not about Mary, you do have to ask yourself the question, God who... Uh, can't look on sin. I think it says in the Bible, yeah. and ha- and and you know, is separate. Like sin separates us from God. Would Jesus be able to be inside a vessel? Yeah, that is full of sin. Exactly. And it's, it's a good question to ask. Yeah, and I think that even uh, Protestants are probably going to disagree with a lot of those doctrines. But I will say, when it comes to Mary, the Protestant response to Catholic belief has done more damage to them than they have any idea about. In other what words, mean? The, 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 the response is to pull so far back from any honor oh. of Mary. Like you don't, like, one of the most powerful images to look at in the Bible from a Catholic perspective is when Jesus is on the cross and he says, he looks down and he sees John and Mary and he says, behold your mother, behold your son. When a Protestant sees that, again, I'm speaking generally, mm-hmm. When a Protestant sees that, they say, oh, uh, Jesus asked his buddy John to take care of his mom. Isn't that nice? When a Catholic sees that, he sees Christ giving his mother to the church and sharing that relationship with his church. That's I, such a powerful image. It is. What you're saying is cool, but how, how do you make that connection? So I, I'll agree. I, when I, I love that story because I think we... Just kind of, we think of John as Jesus's best friend of the disciples. Right. So it's like, oh, his best friend is going to take care of his mom. And that is, that's awesome. And John's trusted. 
But so how do you make the connection connection that this is symbolic of Jesus giving his mother to the, the all Christians? Because the Gospels aren't a documentary. They're a theological narrative, and they're specifically a theological narrative from the perspective of the first century church. In other words, the when the Gospels are being written, yes, they are describing Jesus as he historically was, but they are also describing their theology in light of the gospel stories. Hence, you know, to give an example of that, like the reading for this last weekend in the liturgy was the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, growing up in the evangelical world, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is that's an awesome miracle. Jesus fed 5,000 people. As a Catholic, I look at that and say Jesus fed 5,000 people, and the reason that's in the Gospels, it's a picture of the Eucharist as a Eucharistic narrative. So then what – so let's – from the Catholic point of view, Jesus gives his mother to the church. Yes. What does that mean exactly? Like what is the significance of that? She's our mother in the way that she was his mother. Not what, to be what does that mean, really? That she, like, think of the relationship Catholics have with the saints. They're people who pray for you. Mm-hmm. They're people who, you know, advocate for you on your behalf. And now the mother of God, by participation with Christ in, in his church, we share his mother. This, this incredible, like, think about this relationship that exists between Jesus and Mary. Like, you just contemplate that. Like, it's deeply mysterious. It's deeply profound. And then in that moment on the cross, Jesus invites his church to share in that relationship. And so Mary loves you in the way that she loved Jesus, and she cares for you in the way that she cared for Jesus. She prays for you in the way she prays for Jesus. Like, it's, you can disbelieve it all you want, but there is something deeply profound in that. No, I, I agree. If, if that was if that was something that I could believe in, then that that would be. I'm not trying to say it in a mean way. I'm just. Right, right. I, it does seem significant if that was a direction that my belief system went. Yeah, it's a, and that's where I think it's such a shame. Like Protestants could get so much farther in that direction while still not agreeing with. Like you don't have to buy uh, immaculate conception. Yeah, you're saying we could honor Mary more, but we go like the, you could oh, still value that. Yeah. Without being where you guys are, I think it's one of the great tragedies. That in order to separate from Catholicism, one hundred percent, kind of shunned Mary. Is that yeah. what you're saying? It's like, oh, we can't get on board with the, you know, the assumption of Mary. Okay, so in in saying you reject that, you've rejected everything else. I didn't even it's, know that that was a, a belief. Actually, it's very tragic. I mean, until you taught me. Yeah. All right. Well, that that's an interesting conversation. I know we didn't really. Well, no, I think we covered most of the things with Mary. So let's move on. Misconception number eight. This is just kind of a dumb one. Catholics aren't Christians. What are you even going to say about that? Yeah, I mean, dumb. we we are the Christians. No, that sounds mean. But I mean, like we're the we're the original. You guys are the spinoff franchise. Uh, misconception number seven: the Pope is infallible in all things. Yeah, we we hit on this yeah. in number one. That's right. Misconception number six: the Catholic Church is opposed to science and rejects evolution. Yeah, this one's this one's kind of silly. It is interesting how science has been fetishized, though, especially over the last couple of years. It's like you know, science is almost being held up as this uh, alternate belief system. The very nature of science and the nature of belief in the sense of religion are, are two different things. You know, obviously, we've done a lot on evolution over the years. Um, I'd say that Catholicism, if anything, is much, much, much more pro-evolution than, or at least open to it, um, than uh, evangelical world is. You know, we're not we're not out building the Ark Encounter or anything like that at the Creation Museum. Uh, so th- that one's just silly. I think we're. I kind of want to see that. I don't necessarily <laughs> right. believe in everything they believe, but I do think that's kind of cool. Uh, it I, seems I, like a road trip you would. Take. I think I'll go see that Ark, and I just shake my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you go visit Rick. I think he lives uh, within a couple oh, really? hours. Of That's it. cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, I think Rick is. Uh, he works at the Ark Encounter. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you had me for a second. Uh, yeah, his uh, side gig. We have to get no, back on track. So, no, no, is the Catholic on, Church opposed no, to science? And, and, and like a lot of where this comes from, I think is you know the Church's stance on birth control and and things like that. Which again, people look at that and say, well, you're anti-science because you don't want people to take birth control, and they never stop for two seconds to actually realize what the Church is and is not saying. There, it, it's stupid. It's insane. It's it's just another slander. Okay, and then I mean, it might be a surprise then for some people to hear that now. Early in the Sci-Fi Christian, you had brought up that you would be open to uh, theistic evolution. 
I, I actually am kind of surprised that the Catholic Church is open to theistic evolution. But you, oh, totally. You, yeah. A, okay, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's like Catholicism. And we talked about this in the first episode. It, do, it doesn't always say this is the belief. And I think that when it comes to things like evolution, that's the error evangelicals tend to make. This is the belief. Catholicism says here are the things that you have to believe, and anything that is compatible with those beliefs is good. So in the example of uh, evolution, we believe in original sin. Okay, so we believe in original sin as an event, you know, that historically happened. And we believe God created the universe. So God is the creator. So if you were to say uh, everything came from nothing and just randomly evolved without God, that would be out of bounds with Catholic beliefs. If you were to say uh, Adam and Eve are just, uh, uh, you know, they're they're a, a myth for a real experience in which original sin entered the world, that's compatible with Catholic belief. If you said Adam and Eve are a myth and the whole original sin thing is just describing the fact that sometimes we do bad things. It's like, no, now you're outside of the boundaries. And if you said Adam and Eve were real historical people, that's also 100%. compatible with Catholic yeah. belief. Yeah. All right, interesting. All right, that's a good one. All right. The phenomenon of, of young earth creationism, though, the reason you find that almost nowhere in Catholicism is young earth creationism, at least in its present form. I mean, you can obviously go back thousands of years and find different different beliefs. But the phenomenon of young earth creationism actually comes out of Jehovah's Witnesses in the 19th century. There's a whole book about this called The Creationists. It's very, very interesting, tracing the intellectual legacy. And then it combines with the pietistic movement and, and into modern evangelicalism. But it's a very, very recent phenomenon. What was the other belief that you said during these episodes that was... Uh Belief system, a lot of Protestants believe, but it's a less. It's like a hundred years old or something. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned in these episodes, but like the the oh, oh in the, in this episode, I was probably talking about papal infallibility being officially believed. But we've talked in the past about uh, the rapture. Yeah, a very rapture. Recent, recent yeah. belief. I feel like it was something else, but it's okay. We can. So it's kind of interesting because you'll find these big conflict points within Protestantism that are completely absent from Catholic thought. Like the debate doesn't exist because. Uh, this whole lineage like is post-Reformation. The same thing, and people will be shocked to hear this, the Calvinist-Armenian debate doesn't exist in Catholicism. No, I'm not shocked because it, you've talked to me so much and something I love about Catholicism is that mystery is okay. Yeah. So there's not a clear answer, so the mystery is okay. Yeah, but like those concepts, yes, we talk about things like free will and predestination, but those concepts of Calvinist versus Arminian, how that's, that's like everything in certain circles yeah. of Protestantism, that debate literally doesn't exist yeah. in Catholic circles. It can't because of how— It can't. Uh, yeah, I get it. It's fascinating. All right. Well, number five is actually what I brought up earlier in the episode. I didn't mean to steal number five's thunder, but here we go. Misconception number five, indulgences let you pay to have your sins forgiven. We covered that. Yeah. Number four, here we go, misconception. We, we indulged in that one already. I'm, I'm just saying, this one's a little bit touchy, but we did talk about the Catholic crisis, so yeah. get ready. Misconception number four, priests are more likely to be pedophiles. Yeah, so let's talk about this. Um, first of all, that's not true. Uh, second, every priest who is a pedophile and the ones who cover it up should burn in hell, just where Dante put them. Okay, so both those things are true. Um no, the in term uh, this is like the scary reality of life. If you look at the actual statistics, the Catholic Church is on historically is on par or lower with other institutions like schools or daycares when it comes to abuse like this. So the specific argument, because I'm not excusing any of this for a second, but I'm arguing the point that you are more susceptible to be abused by a priest. No. And specifically where people will trot out priestly celibacy, I just find this stupid. Like, here's the thing. Like, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm not celibate. We'll just leave it there. Uh, I, I think I would have a tough time. If, but like, I'm going to say this very bluntly because this is how offensive it sounds when people make that argument. If you're a, a sexually normal, healthy adult and you stopped having sex, in what universe would that lead to you abusing a child? Like, that's gross. I'm sorry, that's so grossly offensive. And the idea that that stop not having sex as an adult male is going to lead you to start abusing children is is a disgusting line of thought. So that argument is right out. Oh, misconception number three ties into what you're just saying. Mis well, one more thing on this oh, one, though. Sorry, go ahead. One more thing on this one. The real scandal outside, like, this is evil. Evil people are going to be in every institution. The cover-up 
is what makes me sick. And every single one of those bishops and priests and popes if, who have covered this up belong in Dante's hell. Uh, I, I know you're not trying to be... When you say Dante's hell, what do you mean by that? I mean, even? specifically, Dante put the pope in hell. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you just mean hell in general? Yes, but I'm evoking a specific image of yeah. the pope upside down in yeah. hell. All right. Number and I'm also covering myself behind Dante. Oh, you're saying the Pope could go to hell? Dante did it first. So oh. I'm, I'm taking cover. Uh, yeah, and we did cover, if you search Catholic Crisis uh, in our archives, you'll, Ben did cover this, this subject in the past. But I want to hear, uh, this ties it together with what we were just talking about. Misconception number three, Catholic priests can't get married. Yeah, so uh, this, is, this gets really inside baseball very fast. Um, Catholic priests cannot get married. This is true. Catholic priests cannot be married. This is false. Let me explain. When a Catholic, within the Latin rite, so there's different rites within Catholicism. There's the Latin rite, which is most Catholics. There's the Eastern rite. There's others like that. Um, when you become a priest, you take a vow of celibacy, a vow not to, not to marry. Okay. So in the Latin rite, the vow of celibacy is required for a priest, usually. Or I should say the vow to not get married. Let's put it like that, because celibacy means something different. The vow to not marry, which in Catholicism, under Catholic teaching, if you're not married, since a heterosexual marriage uh, that is open to life is the only morally valid place for sexual activity within Catholic teaching. If you're not married, you're not you're not getting any. So... Catholic, uh, when when a priest in the, or a man becomes a priest in the Latin rite, he makes a vow to not get married. That's true. However, if a priest is already married, so he's an Anglican priest where marriage is allowed and becomes a Catholic and converts over, it's not as though he's required to not be married anymore. Okay, so there's different rules there's different disciplines and all of that the eastern i don't know what all the rules are in the eastern rite it's different married priests are very common in the eastern rite and so married priests do exist so the catholic discipline is that priestly celibacy is a good thing but it's not 100 percent required that is not a point of doctrine however meaning that it could conceivably change you're saying right now it's not required, although all priests – is it okay to say all priests do make, uh, make that sacrifice, although it's not yeah. required? Yeah. So, for example like, – like It would be very rare. Yeah. I mean, have you ever heard of a priest that said, well, it's not required, so – No, no. It is required. Oh. I it think, is required. But it's not – so what are you saying? That it's not part of your doctrine. It's not part of the doctrine. It's a discipline that is imposed on the priest. So it's a required discipline. Yes. Okay. Requirement and doctrine are two different things. Okay. Doctrine is unchangeable. Disciplines are changeable. Okay. So let's... Would you be open to, uh, if they change that discipline? Would in, you in theory, yes. In practice, no. Is there a big reason why you think it would be bad? A lot of the... Well, first of all, I don't trust the people who tend to advocate for it. They think they come from a very disingenuous place of Catholicism. It tends to be a way to uh, be presented as a way to erode Catholic... Uh, doctrine and other dogmas. In other words, when people, you see somebody advocating against priestly celibacy, you look at what else they're advocating for. It's usually a Trojan horse that's packed full of other, uh, uh outright attacks on, on Catholic dogmas. That would be one reason. You know, it, it, that's why I say theoretically no, but in practice, yes. Uh, and also, I think there's good reason for it. You know, I think that you look at, talk to evangelical pastors about the strain on their marriage. It's a very real thing. And that doesn't mean it can't be done, but the strain on marriage is a very, very real thing. Um, yeah, so all that to say, the other nuance in here is that, like, with an Anglican priest, they convert, they still are married, they're a Catholic priest now, they've been accepted into the Catholic Church by way of their conversion. Uh, if they are serving as a Catholic priest and their wife, their spouse dies, they could not remarry as a Catholic priest, so that mm -hmm. that's why point out the distinction between making a vow not to marry versus not you know complete celibacy okay all right ben well i just as i'm looking at this misconception list i mean this may have even happened to you when you the first time we went through this list i can see that the number one is a repeat 
Oh. And I just copied the list as is that I received from our friend Rick. Sorry, Rick. I, I should have read it through more closely. It's Catholics Pray to Saints. We already talked about that. So the final question, which I actually had as misconception number two, but also now it's one, is the is the following. And again, I didn't plan this, but this will be a great plug for what we're doing in the extra feed where this conversation continues. We're, we're continuing to talk about Catholic doctrine over on the extra feed in our Dosi do through the Deutero <laughs> series. That's a, that's a great title. So here's the misconception. I'll say number one. Misconception number one, although it is technically number two in the yeah, list. Yeah, we're, we're tracking. The church added books to the Bible. Yeah, we've talked about this. Silly, silly, silly. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a joke. It's, it's honestly such a joke when you actually dive into the history for more than two seconds. You know, it's interesting because I was uh, just... As we've been talking about the Deuterocanon, I was reading some on this, and I'd mentioned when we talked about this before that, you know, St. Jerome is kind of the, the touch point that uh, Protestants will use to say, well, here's a Catholic saint, not just a saint, but a doctor of the church who, who advocated against the Deuterocanon. Uh, to what extent Jerome at one point in his life advocated against the Deuterocanon? I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give Protestants that one. It is disputable. Uh, but what I didn't know that I learned this week, is that after this was decided by the various councils that ruled on the canon, he strongly advocated for the Deuterocanon. So oh, really? later in his life, he, he strongly advocated. And indeed, went so far as to say that he was misunderstood earlier in his life. Wow. All right. Well, like I said, over on the extra feed, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash the sci-fi Christian, we just covered Tobit. We're about to cover Judith next week. I'm reading through the Deuterocanonical. I know I say that word wrong every time, but yeah. uh, what, what the Protestants would call the Apocrypha. Sorry, Ben. Uh, we're it is easier to say. <laughs> it is a lot easier. I wish you just let me call it that. No, the, so I'm reading through the Deuterocanonical books for the first time. I'd read Tobit last week or two weeks ago, and Judith is coming up next. Uh, so that's it, Ben. Do you have well, any closing I, thoughts? I do. And before I want to share one other thing, I wanted to to talk about for just a, a minute or two here at the end. And this is to we've talked a lot about doctrine and everything. I want to make a, an experiential plea, or if not a plea, to at least. Like experientially describe why is Catholicism so attractive to me? What why why is it that I'm drawn there? And so this is not an argument for doctrine. And I will say that if Catholicism is not true, you should not be a Catholic, despite what I'm just about to say. So I had a pair of experiences um, over our two week break um, that drove home for me the contrast so deeply. So the first one is, and I won't say the name of the church, but there's a, a, a major multi-campus megachurch here in the northern part of the Twin Cities. Uh, and as I was driving to work, I saw a billboard for them. And the billboard said, yes, you can wear flip-flops. That was their selling point. Yes, you can wear flip-flops. I get its tongue-in-cheek and I get its advertising. Okay, so that, you know, it's like it's about what I expected from that church, but it it, it kind of annoyed me and everything. Um, so then a couple of days later, uh, yeah, you know, you know which church I'm talking about, I'm sure. Of course. Yes. A couple of days later, uh, when we went to confession a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were going to go to the Saturday night mass. So confession's at like three o'clock and then mass is at 430. So we had a little time. And so I was holding, I mean, I was walking around the church. And I saw this painting that has been is hanging in the lobby, and I'd never really noticed it before. And it's a print of Raphael's fresco, the Disputation of the Holy Sacrament. And so, I, I, Disputation of the Holy Sacrament. So, people who are in front of a computer, um, pull this up. And otherwise, I'm, I'm going to describe it to you here, but it will help you to pull this up. And what you see, um, when you look at this picture, the first thing you see is you see an altar. Uh, just like you would see in a at the bottom of the picture, you'll see an altar, just like you'd see in a Catholic mass. And uh, you know it looks very normal. There's uh, a monstrance on it. Monstrance is a display for the consecrated host. Um, I could show you here for your experience. Yeah, I got yep. it. I okay. it right here. So it's on display. Surrounded around the altar are various doctors of the church and other great Catholic thinkers, Dante's in there. And so, you know, it's like a lot of this classical art you could go through and pick out who everybody is. And then up above that, heaven is opened, and 
you see God, the Godhead, there's Jesus in the middle, and above him is the Father, and below him is the Dove representing the Holy Spirit. You see Mary and uh, John the Baptist on either side of him. He's surrounded by the apostles. There's Peter holding the keys. You see angels. You see heaven opening. And I made a point earlier in one of these episodes is you just get this amazing picture. And, I, you know, when I, I saw this in the lobby, I just found myself like contemplating it as it's almost a, a religious experience. It, it just really struck me how profound this is. And what struck me as profound of it isn't just that it's a beautiful painting, though, though it is. What struck me as so profound is that this is what Catholics believe is happening at every Mass. Catholics believe that this is literally happening at every Mass. In other words, we talked about how at the moment of, of the Mass, at the moment of the consecration, uh, we are made present at the moment of Christ's sacrifice. So what you see, what Raphael is depicting here, is literally what Catholics believe is happening at the Mass and I found myself, as I was staring at that, I thought about this billboard I'd seen, and it's like, that's the contrast. That's the contrast. I get that it's advertising. I get it's not a fair comparison. But it just hit me so profoundly. It's like, the problem I have, look at how low we're aiming over here. And look at how high we're aiming over here. That's the reality I want to live in. And that's why I'm a Catholic is that like i want to live in that reality and i believe it's true so i'm not just you know i'm not not trying to say it's merely an emotional response but it's like if you want the nuts and bolts of what drives me on a visceral uh transrational level so we're describing you know we're 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 having a rational conversation but that level that's below that the the pure spiritual the transcendent level what drives me to be a catholic is this i don't want to live in that world where what I'm sold on to come to church is that I can wear flip-flops. I want to live in the world where you are literally in the presence of God and the saints at the moment of the consecration. That is my argument for Catholicism. I mean, I, I, I think uh, flip-flops was an easy one to win. <laughs> but they did it to themselves. It's not our strongest argument. <laughs> <laughs> they did it to themselves. Uh, well, Ben, three episodes. Great job. Thank you for taking some time to let us ask questions. I mean, you could probably tell. I've talked to you about this type of thing numerous times, and I still, I'm always learning. I, it's it's uh, hard to get a full grasp of this uh, other doctrine. So thank oh, you. I'm for, all, I'm all, you're welcome. I'm almost disappointed we're not doing another one next week. These, I know. these are good. Well, if listeners do ever send in some more feedback, and if I, I've been reading through some different uh, material on Catholicism. If I have more questions, maybe I'll save them up, and maybe a few months from now we'll come up with a surprise by Pope Part 4. Yeah, and if I can straw man with a cheap Protestant billboard, I'll yeah, get exactly. some more material that exactly. way. I'm sure, you got, I'm sure you'll have some people respond to that. So for now, everybody, thanks for being here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DiPono. And we're the Sapphire Christians signing off. Goodbye. I mean, it was a beautiful argument, but <laughs> it's kind of easy to beat flip flop. Well, it is, but it's 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 the contrast of <laughs> it's I'm contrasting extremes. I hear you, but yet the contrast I think exists even without the extremes. <laughs>